Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Is, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gifts of Freedom. We're coming to you over www.blogtalkradio.com. Also a reminder that this show, as all shows, are archived can be downloaded for free at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. My guest tonight is Jamie Myrick, and Jamie is going to be talking to us and portraying Madam C.J. Walker, who was America's first self-made millionaire. Hi, Jamie. Hello. It's a pleasure to be on, on, on with you. Great to have you. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this uh, uh, business of portraying Madam C.J. Walker. Well, um, I'm, a, I'm a teacher and a storyteller, and although I teach secondary school now and teach high school, I started out um, working in elementary school and in between um, teaching and subbing as a teacher, I would give presentations for elementary school-aged children, wanting them to be able to know a little bit about their history. A lot of times we hear families, black families, complain that um, school is not teaching history. In truth, there is history being taught on all grade levels. However, there's not a dialogue about specific cultures. We have to become more like the um, the Jewish community and the Asian community and begin to share our personal stories with our kids. And so I decided to do that as a, as a young woman and go into schools and churches and community centers and, and tell the stories of people who have made changes for us and continue to make those changes. So I take folk tales and fables and I share the stories of the women who've made changes for our uh, for the African-American community. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I'd like to remind our listeners that they can send a Facebook request to Leslie Guest and learn a little bit more and see what she has posted there on her first, uh, Facebook page uh, concerning Madam C.J. Walker. And uh, do you have contact information, Facebook page? I love Facebook. My Facebook page um, has information. JP Myrick. I mean, JP Myrick um, is a Facebook page that includes information about me as a storyteller, um, the work I do, and um, with teachers in terms of teaching strategies. I have. Um, I teach how to use storytelling in your instruction to guide your instruction and to help students understand more difficult, complex texts when they start reading books. But also, um, it's just a powerful tool tool for lecturing, as as most of us know, just by watching a minister with a football field of people listening. And when you listen to the Joel Osteen's and the Joyce Myers in between their sermons, you have these vignettes of stories and constantly being weaved in and out. So storytelling is a great tool to get kids to understand the text so when it's time for them to take a test, they remember it. It's a whole brain instructional tool. So I give workshops for teachers on that as well as perform and do assemblies from the the perspective of the storyteller. And I I think it's very important. And uh, the Facebook page, again, is J.T. Myrick, and that's M-Y-I-C-K. 
JP, as in precious, JP, M Y R I C K. Okay, well, I'm glad I asked. Oh, I heard JP is JP. JP. Now, Madam C.J. Walker uh, started out in uh, Indiana, was it? Um, good question. She actually, she was actually um, uh, came from the south and made and made it through that great migration, like everyone else. Um, lived in um, Louisiana and then um, Mississippi. Married her husband. Um, her her husband, as she married at age 14, was murdered for and lynched simply because he corrected uh, a gentleman who was cheating a black woman out of her her change when she was buying buying items at a store. And so the local, so you know, what is simply a, a KKK sort of move, the local group of men came in and snatched him out of the home. And so after his lynching, she just walked away and left with her child. Okay. She just up and left with the child, and uh... and 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 had to had to start her life all over again. She she um, understood that his ability to read and write and that intelligence was important for our next generation. So once she made it out, it was it was it was important to her that her daughter get a chance to go to school full time. So she just she worked like many working class, underclass, working class Black Americans make. I mean, underclass in the sense that you work a full time job, but you don't have enough money to pay for rent. You don't have enough money to pay for food. And I know some teachers, depending on where you live in the country, you can be working full time and still need support from the government in order to take care of your family. So she worked really hard so her daughter could go to school because she didn't get a chance to do that because in the South, even at the time when my mother was growing up in the 20s, different parts of the South, you worked in the fields when the fields were ready to be harvested or when the fields were, when it was time to work on planting the seeds. So black, black, black and African-Americans at that time period weren't going to school full-time. They'd go to school for two months here and two months there. And if you didn't get, you know, if you resisted, then you were, you could be a victim of lynching and all of that. But she she was in that early part of the, the, the great migration we tend to think of only as being a part of the 30s and the 40s, but it actually started, you know, at the end of that. The, okay. At the end of the after the Civil War was over, then we were no longer property. We were then something that was, you know, something that was ridiculed and a threat. And if you were no longer property, that's when lynchings began to take place on a daily basis all across the country, but particularly in the South, around areas of you're not you. You mean you want me to pay you for working as you share crops? And that sort of thing. So she got out and started working. Okay. Um, why don't you give us a little taste of uh, the performance, and we'll get back to our conversation when you're done. Oh, okay. Um, I often start off with, because I think, let me just give you a background. I I, I think of Madam C.J. Walker as not just being one of the first, one of the first black women to to earn over a million dollars in in the business enterprise, because there's there's a couple of women on the West Coast who who are not known as well, who I I I talk about as well. But one of the things that was unique about her, I think, is she was like our our very first American um, 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 motivational speakers. So from word of mouth, word of mouth through the churches and black women organizations. And, and affiliations like that, she was able to get her product known before she started doing the mass marketing of mailing things out. So when I start my show for um, when I perform as Madam C.J. Walker, I use my imagination, and in my imagination, most times when I when people have programs in church, people come in and they they have 
start with a, a scripture or start with a song. So I start with how I got over, how I got over. This whole soul looks back and wonders how I got over. And I thank you for inviting me to speak to you and your group. It's a pleasure each and every time. Sometimes when I show up, I feel just a little bit uncomfortable because people tend to compare me to some great men and women, and I don't know if I'm, I don't feel like I'm all that great. I'm just a little child, a little girl who I see myself still as that little girl from the fields of Mississippi, the fields of Louisiana, where I picked cotton until my hand bled. And I didn't get a chance to go to school when I really wanted to go to school because I had to be in those fields. And then at one point I found myself being promoted to wash tub woman. And from there I was promoted to cook. And from there I was promoted to a maid. But the woman you hear speaking to you today, I promoted myself into this businesswoman. And I'm here to say that if I can, so can you. So can you because for your generation, you can go to school. You can go to school from kindergarten and go to any Ivy League college or university that you want to. And one of the reasons why is that I picked that cotton. And I washed them, though. I washed things from tubs and to become the person that I am. And every time I make any money doing, doing the work that I do, I set aside a portion of my money to go to colleges and universities so the next generation can get educated. And whenever I talk to people, other people who have the means to do so, I encourage them as well. And by doing that, I've been able to meet some wonderful people who I really do think that we should lift up. I mean, my business wouldn't be the business that it is if I hadn't met my my husband, C.J. Walker, who introduced me to Alva C. Roebuck. You know Roebuck of Stevens and Roebuck? And they reminded me that I was working too hard, and that I began to, and they showed me how I could begin to send out um, newsletters, uh, newspaper articles and and get things published, and that and that way I was able to sell things in my catalog and I'd be able to reach a greater, a larger group. And, I, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't, wasn't for them. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't that when I was working from, from can to cake, I, would, I found myself working with another young woman named Annie Turnbull Malone who was already working in the industry where she was showing people how to use products on the hair. Now, my product is totally different, but I learned from watching her. And when God spoke to me and told me that this was something that I could do, I could draw upon that opportunity of working with her. No, I'm nothing like Louis T. Latimer or, or, or any of the great men and women who have invented things that have gone down in history. I'm not Garrett Morgan. I'm not... And so that's kind of how I start off. And I go into the different people who have made great strides. I, in my presentation, I'll give a little bit about Biddy Mason and Mary Ellen Pleasant, who came to California just towards the beginning of the Civil War. And they kind of for Mary Ellen Pleasant who moved into San Francisco area. She came in after having a chance to live in the north and got involved in the Underground Railroad, took a steamship into the Bay Area, um, and still had managed to keep some money from the marriage that she had with her husband, and she used that money to secretly buy a great amount of property in the the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. So she began, she was very wealthy as um, and was considered California millionaire, as well as Biddy Mason, who owned, had a similar sort of situation, and she owned a great part of Los, downtown Los Angeles. And both ladies, when people came here as slaves, it helped to get them free because California was a, 
a state that didn't that wasn't didn't want to become a a slave state. So they employed people and they hired them. So I I presented from that perspective. Any questions from that? Yeah, I'm curious. Um, were there any critics? Was she at all criticized? Was she at all criticized for the work that she was doing? For the work that she was doing and the industry that she went into in terms of beautifying, et cetera. Now, I, in terms of um, going, going through that whole transformation of having your hair in braids, and, and I think at that time period, for, for one, at that time period, there weren't that many people providing um, products that allowed you to have, if you're an African-American, to have straightened hair that was easy to use and that actually worked very well. Her and um, and um, Annie, Annie Turnbull were both innovators in that sense. And for the other than that, what black women would generally do is wear their hair in braids. And then maybe on Sunday, bring you know, take the braids down so your hair will have the the will be um, somewhat straightened. Now I think the in terms of people being critic critic critical of her in terms of the whole straightening process is now we have this new generation where we have young people who are so obsessed with having such bone straight hair. And the weaves and all of the all the stuff that go along with that, that we begin to look and say, have we gone too far? But when you read um, read literature about Madam C. J. Walker, it wasn't a matter for those women in the 1900, um, 1920, 1940. It wasn't a matter of how straight can I get my hair so I can look like. And their time period, they probably would say Miss Anne, like white women. It wasn't a matter of that. It was a matter of they worked such long, hard, long hours and did such hard work that they just wanted their hair, wanted things to be quick and easy for them to just so they can keep going, so they can make it to work and come home and it be all, you know, easy for them. Exactly. So it wasn't a matter of you have bone straight hair. Now, this generation, 2013, when you see people with the weeds and their straight hair, they want a completely flat iron bone straight. It wasn't. It wasn't a matter of that. It was a matter of can I just get up and and keep. And for Madam C. J. Walker, initially when she started coming up with her own formula for hair growth, it was about losing her hair from the stress of raising her child alone in a big city where there was no no family to family extended family support, and she was taking care of her child. And other people was like. Your daughter's getting old that she can go work in the house and babysit someone and, and, and fighting that, that whole mindset that, you know, you have a black, a black daughter and she can start working and she wanted her child to make sure her child would go to school and finish. And she was determined, even if she worked 24 hours a day, she was determined for that to happen. And her hair began to fall out from the stress, from the worry. Um, going to school is raining, but you don't have no coat, but go on anyway because I'm going to go on anyway. And just that stress. So um, um, she, from one of the books, and I, I pulled from a few different documents, you know, types of documents for it, but one of the documents I've read, she, she would go to bed just exhausted and tired, praying and thinking about her, her family that she lost, her husband that she lost in such a cruel manner. And she felt that her hair was falling out from that stress, and she came through. There was in one of the texts it says that she felt like God was speaking to her, asking her to make her own product and use things that were a little bit different than what she used when she worked with Annie, and that product allowed her hair to start growing. And then other people started asking her, "What? You're looking pretty good. What? What did you do? What? What are you doing with your hair?" Because her initial product was all about making your hair strong. It took a while before she came up with the product, the straightening combs and the straightening products. Well, there's no doubt that she uh, tapped into a very lucrative market. 
um, even today, as I understand, and I'd like to know your thoughts on this, that 78% of all money spent on beauty products are spent by African-American women today. An industry actually has been taken over by uh, Koreans, by foreign influence. Do you have any thoughts and comments on that? And what do you think uh, Madam J. C.J. Walker would think of that today? Um, I I don't know what she would think about it um, today, but overall I think it's kind of disappointing. I think she would be frustrated if it would mean also that her business, it would cost her cost losing a business like hers. And it had in the sense that when we were, I don't know how old you are, when I was growing up, there were products that, you know, we saw advertised in the Ebony magazine and the Jet magazine that were still being produced by black people for black people in terms of our hair and skin care. But now names that sound similar to those products still exist, but black people are not producing them. As you said, white people and and, and Koreans and everyone else is producing them. And sometimes I wonder if those products are even going back since they're not being produced by us anymore. Who knows if they're doing the same doing the same sort of job? And I have to just wonder, because I'm one of those people that I, I when I perform as her, I wear a wig because I generally wear my hair in a natural in a natural state or in twisties or braids, simply because I want, as a school teacher, I want my kids to understand that yes, you can be professional and still have your the hair that God gave you. And I've had conversations sometimes at the end of giving this presentation where people will bring this up. I was um, presenting at uh, a large um, library function um, last last winter, and some mothers were there, and they were concerned about younger and younger black children thinking that they must have completely straight hair to be pretty. And then when the mothers go in, go in on this by doing it regularly, then their babies are losing their hair, they're losing their follicles, you know, and then the kids are frustrated and just getting them to understand that sometimes for your hair to grow, you have to go back and, I say, go back to Africa and let your natural hair be, you know, grow using through braids or whatever, whatever is necessary. But getting those babies to realize that they're beautiful no matter what. And based on stuff that I read, that was not, it it wasn't like Madam C.J. Walker's intent to think that black women could only be beautiful if they had straightened hair. She saw the beauty in, in all women. She was just providing products to make people be able to move quicker through their day. Through their day. And I don't think she would have had any idea that we have gotten to this point. I saw a little girl at the swimming pool and she had a weed that had where her you could see all of her front part of her hair was gone because she pulled up out of the swimming pool, and just kind of heartbreaking because she was a beautiful little girl. And who know? I don't know if those follicles grow back. I'm not. I'm not that. I'm not that scientific. And uh, during the presentation, you mentioned Annie Turnbow. Was that a colleague of hers, partner of hers in the business? Um, Annie when. I can't remember if it was Detroit or St. Louis. At one of the one of the cities that she lived in, Annie Turbo had already started um, creating um, creating um, uh, straightening type hair products for people, and she hired some people to help her to mix her products. And Madam C.J. Walker worked a little bit with her at, in between doing her her job as cook, cleaning person. For white women, she would do that from time to time. But her initial, Madam C.J. Walker's initial product, um, got a, I guess I should, I should have pulled it up with me. I got a, a um, it hurt. It was the wonderful hair grower. It was, it was about, it was like a hair growing product, this first initial one. And then she moved on from there to 
hot combs and other products. And you mentioned uh, that occasionally you wear a wig when you uh, go out and do the presentations. Um, are you aware, or can you comment on, I believe it's uh, uh, the Korean government had an arrangement uh, given to them where they have the exclusive rights to um, import human hair uh, from nowhere else in the United States or in the world uh, can, that can be done. Do you have any comment on that? I had no idea that that they have exclusive So it's not coming from Europe or from the Caribbean, just from Korea? Yeah, it's coming from uh, an Asian country. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't know about that, but I know, and I had one lesson that I taught in one of my high school classes where we're we're reading an article about um, the the um, la, 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 um, children of one of the Asian one of the Asian countries who practice as Buddhists and. They allow their hair to grow a certain length, and then at a particular time, they shave it all off and and send that off as and, and then it's sold as hair that you know uh, Americans are buying for their hair weaves. I don't know if that breaks my heart as much as as um, black women not realizing that you know straight are natural. They're beautiful in spite of what anyone else may say. But um I had no I have no idea in terms of um I don't know how to keep a monopoly on that. I mean I can't go to Mexico and go get and go get me a, a whole bundle of, of um hair to put my stitches in. Well I think you... the thing that, that grieves me somewhat is when I was growing up are we did have black beauty supply houses that were owned by local black businesses who employed um, African-American um, staff, because I remember my mom's friend had one, and it was just like we had the, the hair supply businesses in our community. We had um, music stores in our community. Well, certain things that have just disappeared for this generation of kids who have this mindset that I think they tend to have a mindset that um, their communities are bad because there's, and we have, because those things have disappeared. Not only are they not seeing black professionals in the communities that are primarily black, but they're no longer seeing businesses that are ran by black. And part of that is on us supporting black businessmen and black professionals when they open up a law firm or a doctor's office or any sort of store, we have to we have to spend our money back with them. One of the things I've been promoting this this last few um few weeks is encouraging people to go and I live in the California Bay Area near San Francisco. There's the oldest black bookstore in our nation is Market's Bookstore, and um, what was the name of that bookstore? Market's Bookstore in San Francisco. Market's Bookstore, San Francisco. And um, it has it there. There's a move to try to make it like a a a landmark for the state of California, and I'm trying to encourage people to um, participate in trying to make sure that that happens because Marcus Bookstore was not only just a bookstore in the early 60s, it was a place where black writers, when they were not being received as well by the publishing companies in those days, could go to Marcus Books and their work was getting published out of out of the bookstore there and then distributed around to other bookstores around the, the country who supported black books. And then we started having more black bookstores. So um, we need to spend our dollars there instead of always going to Barnes and Noble. So if you really, you know, want materials about African American people and 
our culture, and you want a diverse, and want the diversity of our perspectives. Marcus Bookstore is, is still one of the places to go and find um, great wealth of information. In fact, a lot of the great, my favorite authors, we open up their books to see a, um, a forward. Uh, a, a few of them have used the um, um, manager of the, the bookstores. Um, Blanche Richardson is one of, the, one of the people that I often see as a person who's asked to write forward because their family has shaped some of the early careers of some of our greatest writers. Have you uh, have you written any literature on this subject or on Madam C.J. Walker? I good question. I have not, but I am in the process of finishing up and working on a book about storytelling and the importance of in, and the importance of using it to keep to keep the history of a culture and also to teach young people. As I said, it's the one it's the one teaching tool that parents, churches, schools can use that young people when you use it, they'll always remember it. They always remember, and they begin to learn how to write and speak more clearly when you when you kind of shape information into the form of, into a form of a story. Okay. And um, so do you have any? Go ahead. Yeah. Are you on a Bluetooth by any chance, or are you on a landline? I'm on a cell phone. You're on a cell phone. Yeah, okay. is it, am, I, am I clear? Yeah, it's it's getting a little bit clearer. It was a little muzzy there for a minute. Okay. Yeah. And um, now we have your contact information. You gave us a Facebook page. Do you have a website? I do. I have my website is jpmyrick.com. And okay. uh, on my website, it gives a little bit of information of the different um, women through history that I, I, I present in my presentations, from Harriet Tubman to Ella Fitzgerald. And I also have a piece that I call Mother Iola, where I tell stories from the perspective of a grandmother talking about um, child rearing and teaching kids um, Positive behavior patterns. Uh, Jamie, are you, are you near your computer? Yes, ma'am. Okay, could you turn uh, the volume down, the computer volume down a bit? Oh, it there's no positive. sound on it. There's no sound on it? No, yeah, my okay. sound is low. We're getting some feedback from somewhere. No. Maybe I need to pull back. Yeah, that might be helpful. Thank you. I'll pull that. That's that's what it is. Can you still hear me? Yes, I can hear you very well. Great. Now you were saying that um, you also perform other uh, historic women. Yes, um, as Ella Fitzgerald, I I give her life story through a concert. Starting with you know you you walk in and it's like a concert going on and in between the the songs I tell the story of that um, Harlem Renaissance era the jazz era through the eyes of Ella Fitzgerald I do Zora Neale Hurston and through Zora Neale Hurston's story I tell the her life as the, um, as a storyteller and actress and and writer and her involvement in the Harlem Renaissance and the people of the Harlem Renaissance so I share the stories, the folk tales and the experience that she 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 went through. I I have a piece on um on um Ida B. Wells, um you uh, pretty much what happens often is I'll get a call from someone uh, who says I'm doing a program on blah, 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 and I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about 
and then I, I develop, so I develop things in that manner. And I, my piece on Harriet Tubman for for a minute was used by a, a, a theater company back east, and they, they produced it for a month off-Broadway. So I, yeah. I performed Harriet Tubman as here. Everyone else in the audience are my are the slaves, and Harriet Tubman is sneaking onto the plantation dressed as an older senior woman, and she's trying to talk them into running away, Guy, telling them exactly what's going to happen. And I do that a lot, um, using a lot of the gospel hymns that we still use in our churches to show the kids that there's a reason for everything that we that ha, that we call our culture. It's not just uh, our pants hanging down and and the rap music. There's there's a rich culture that we still we still practice but we forget where it came from. You've mentioned a uh, lot of names uh, there. Could you give us a little snippet of one of those characters? A little snippet, um Yeah. Okay. For Harriet Tubman, I tend my hook is slave song, slave song of slave song. Oh, excuse me, slave song, slave song of heaven, life in the north. They sung across the Jordan, the Mississippi River. They asked for the chariot to swing low, so they could board the underground railroad. They begged and they prayed for Moses, and Harriet Tubman delivered over three hundred into freedom. Oh, freedom, oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me. But before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. And I'm going home to my Lord, and I'll be free. I'd like to thank you for meeting me here in your Sunday going meeting place. Child seems like every plantation I sneak up on and creep up on, we all got some secret hideaway Sunday go to meeting place where we can worship God in our own way. And the Sunday go to meeting place is not just special because it's here where we come to worship the Lord God Almighty. But it's important because this is where we can sneak off and learn how to read and write. And nothing's more brave for a slave to ever do than to learn how to read or write. Shucks, master can chop off your hand just for trying. So that would be the beginning of Harriet. Okay, and tell our audience, uh, you know, a little bit, you mentioned Ida, you mentioned Zora. Uh, tell us just a little bit about who those folks were. Okay, so Zora, Zora Newhurston, I is, I think of her as being like America's greatest female storyteller. I mean, when I think about storytelling festivals and storytellers in general, she gathered, let me start from the beginning. Zora Neale Hurston grew up in Eatonville, Florida, which was a black a black community where her father was one of the leaders in the community and her mother was very active in, in the business end of the community. community. So she had a, a protective layer of, in terms of her mind and spirit of seeing black people um, having the opportunity to to control their community, to have some say-so in their community. And then when she got a chance to and she began to travel around, she landed in uh, New York around the Harlem Renaissance, attended college and and worked around with things, worked around people like um, Langston Hughes on a wide variety of things. In between going to college, she would travel back to the South, to South America, to the Caribbean and gather the folk tales and the folklore of the, the everyday people. And she incorporates those things in her books that are now being used in our colleges and high schools, particularly you can find a lot of it in their eyes were watching God. So you have the storyline, the love stories, the, the men in her life, of the, of, um, the main characters, men in her life. But in between you have all these folk tales about the crazy mules or the different things and and the analogy of how, you know, people can be very mule-headed. So 
she she was just a genius about that sort of thing. And it's unfortunate that um, ultimately she ended up dying with very little, and you know, after have been one of the most recognized writers of her time period, that she died with very little. That's very unfortunate. But um, it's also uh, interesting that when we begin to get more black things published. And I was thinking about my days when I was a kid and I would spend a lot of my time um, in the summers going to Marcus Bookstore and grabbing stuff. Those early days when they started having picture books for black kids, a lot of those folk tales and fables that were turned into picture books are stories that were gathered up as Zora Neale Hurston would spend her money from the published novels. She would spend her money gathering that research and passing it on and... and, um, so I think a lot of what I do, I owe to, I know a lot of what I do, I have to owe it to Zora Neale Hurston's um, just natural ability to take the African-American community and our voice and put it on paper with no shame, no, and just proud of the fact that look at the creativity of our young people, look at the, look at the wisdom of our elders, and she, she laid that on paper for us by watching and listening with a, with a with a ear of endearment. I think her and Langston Hughes both shared that that, a, like that ability. Uh-huh. Yeah, do you have any events coming up that our listeners uh, would be interested in? Uh, I don't have anything right now that I have a specific date I was speaking to. I'm also a a teacher trainer for the Bay Area Writing Project, which is a organization of teachers who provide professional development in writing around literature. And um, we were discussing, I was discussing with the director about um, doing a conference or training with uh, myself, Awele, and Diane Ferlat. Um, possibly um, later on in the year. But other than that, this summertime is a time when I, I, I dig in and do and, and, and start looking at what new piece I want to work on and what new piece of writing. So I started on a piece um, earlier in the year, the, the, the bare bones of it, on Henrietta Lacks, and just um, finishing that up and just looking at how... Um, her cells are wrapped around this world and used to save us in so many ways and then look at the how her family lost the opportunity of having her because of the way the medical community kind of treats African treated African Americans and still kind of treat African Americans. So Are there I'm, any other um, any websites other than your own that you would recommend, and perhaps uh, any museums or books that you could suggest? Um, in terms of the reading, I you know I really love Leslie's website because she though she's constantly giving us these these nuggets and reminding us that uh, we are here because people have built these bridges for us to cross. And sometimes we forget that someone sacrificed so we could be college professors, doctors, scientists, you know. Someone came before, before us and they had to take a lot of hits in order for us to be able to cross. And sometimes well, I especially when I think about, you know, the young people who feel so lost that they, and I teach high school and sometimes it just seems like they seem so lost and they, they've given up so much and so easily when doors are waiting for them to just open that door. There's no reason to think I can't make it in life unless I'm playing basketball or I can't make it in life unless, you know, I got 100% Straight A's. There's something about that diligent 
um, that being diligent and walking, walking in your own shoes and just pressing forward even when it's when it's difficult. One of the things I try to include, uh, I depending on how much time I have when I'm doing the uh, Madam C.J. Walker piece, is Madam C.J. Walker built a relationship, friendship with um, Booker T. Washington, and Booker T. Washington um, encouraged her because there was, you know, it was, as a person who started out at a time when she couldn't really go to school and get that that um, uh, education that comes from going to a classroom with a teacher, she found she had a mentor in Booker T. Washington and a teacher in Booker T. Washington, and one of the, and some of the things that he wanted to express to people that she she lived those things are um, this is from Booker T. Washington's advice to people: was your mind you choose to awaken and improve it each day. So she didn't have that formal education, but she was trying to do that each day and pass it on to young people. And that's why she gave those donations of everything that she bought. She sold that she took a percentage of it and gave it to different um, black colleges. Booker T. West Washington said, we should embrace our mind as a temple and protect because our mind protects our heart and our soul. He pointed out that we have to have confidence because it allows no one to rob, and we should not allow anyone to rob us of our confidence because that allows us to keep going when it seems like you can't do something. And when I look sometimes at my teenage students, it's like they give up, like they can't, but they got to step out on that faith that they're going to learn it and getting them past that. Booker T. Washington pointed out that you have to build a foundation on high morals and sound principles, and when you are going, you're going through things and people are trying to get you to take shortcuts or do things that are, you know, for my young people to, to move towards doing the illegal stuff or something that's, you got to stick, stick with your principles and keep that foundation because doors will open for you that you don't expect. You, that happens constantly. We want to, um, he, he would point out that we have to manage our own, our own change because change is going to come. You know, when you have trials, that season in your life when horrible things happen, those, you overcome those obstacles by constantly preparing for preparing for that change to come, you know, standing in understanding that it's not always going to be this way. And then it builds strength in you. And when you have that strength, you find that pathway to make it through those obstacles. And education, we with our young people, um, Booker T would have told her and, and and I have tell I try to tell my students they have to understand that there's endless opportunities for them to learn to for them to learn and gain wisdom, and sometimes that wisdom and the, those learning experiences take place in school. Sometimes they take place outside of school, but as long as they're searching for that wisdom, you know, then they can they can find themselves having a successful life. Again, doesn't mean that they have to jump through the hoops like Michael Jordan. We need our young people to begin to open doors for themselves and see all the things, that the gifts and talents that God has placed inside of them and building strong relationships, breeding the right, because they will breed the right outcomes for them. I try to remind my students to look at the famous people that they see every day and then look at who they hang out with. They pick those friends on purpose. Those friends are the people that elevate them. And as as you elevate and you pull your friends up, opposed to you pick the people that you think look good and look cool and you find yourself saying, oh, why didn't I pass that test or why can't I get that job? Well, you surrounded yourself with people who have no goals, so you are lost your goal. So I think one of the, one of the reasons why Madam C.J. Walker was so successful is that she surrounded herself with people who elevated her in every way. And by doing that, although she didn't have that great formal education that she was able to give her daughter, which was her initial goal, just be able to make enough money so her daughter could go to school and have a, and be literate and, and have that opportunity. But she got a chance to get a real education through surrounding herself with people who were bright. Annie Turbo was 
educated, and she passed on information to her as as she was starting to look at the hair care industry. And by marrying C.J. Walker, who was the newspaper man, and getting to know Mr. Roebuck, she learned the, about the business of business. Was that uh, Mr. Roebuck of Sears and Roebuck? Sears and Roebuck. So when okay. when we I don't know how old you are, but if you're old enough to remember when Sears and Roebuck was Sears and Roebuck, <laughs> uh, Roebuck was I'm a that old. American, yeah. Yeah, I'm that old. Well, um, Jamie Myrick, I very much appreciate your joining us this evening. My guest has been Jamie Myrick, teacher and storyteller uh, of exciting black women such as Ella Fitzgerald, Zora Neale Thurston, Ida B. Wells, etc. And you can contact her via Facebook at JP Myrick, M Y R I C K. And she has a website, jpmyrick.com, teacher and educator based on the uh, West Coast, Northern California, San Francisco. San Francisco. Favorite part of California. We got sunshine and it's still cool. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. Uh, Thank you for joining us, and I'm sure that we shall get together in the future. Great. Thank you. Okay. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. In the land of cotton. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. We who believe in freedom cannot rest.